Good morning, Independent Presbyterian Church. It's great to be with you. My name is Tom Gibbs. I am, as Robert said a moment ago, the president at Covenant Seminary, the new president at Covenant, now just about um, a year and a few months into my new role. And uh, as I have uh, begun this new um, responsibility, it's, it's with great appreciation for our partners our ministry partners like Independent Presbyterian Church. I'm so thankful for the leadership of Sean and Robert Parker, Ed Norton, who are all personal friends, but also Sam Graham over the last year, who's become quite an encouragement to me and my wife, as well as a friend and confidant as we uh, share in the burden of leading the seminary. We're so grateful uh, to this congregation. Uh, I'm also grateful to the session for the invitation to share from God's Word. I would invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4. And as you turn there, uh, it's often at the beginning of a service, one of my favorite parts of the worship service is watching uh, God's people gather. As I see you walk in, um, I'm also thinking, are we all aware that someone is already here waiting for us? Uh, that, that our God is eager to meet with his people. Um, he's not just wanting something from us, but he's aiming to give something to us. And of course, that gift is not only his grace, it is himself. He aims to bring us to himself. And it's in our experience of his presence that, that we find our worship uh, come alive. That experience, that posture of heart, that orientation really is at the center of the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. I know you're familiar with this passage, but let's read it again. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that you are seeking worshipers. And yet we confess that we, we cannot give what you seek apart from your grace. Apart from you even giving our seeking. And so we pray that you might do that work. You might speak through my words. You might make your word to live in the power of your spirit. That you would get what you're seeking. You would go to the very bottom of who we are. Renew us and refresh us with the life that is in Christ. May you do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's football season. Are you happy? It's okay to say you are. Um, I, I'm happy. I'm a football fan. I like the fall. Uh, it's one more way to, to sort of gather the collective anxiety that breeds in our hearts naturally, right? We, we can find the person or the team to blame, uh, the one who didn't meet our expectations and and as a football fan, I'm not, a, I'm not just a fan of certain teams. I have my teams, but I also have my coaches. Sometimes coaches and teams don't line up, and in this case, they don't. I'm, I've always been a fan of Coach Mike, Mike Leach. When he started out with the Texas Tech Red Raiders, when I was serving in Texas, he was always a fun, uh, it was always a fun team to watch. And then uh, he's now, of course, at Mississippi State. I don't think any of the Bulldogs are too happy today. Um, after uh, falling to the Tigers last night. But in between Mississippi State and the Texas Tech Raiders, Coach Leach uh, served the Washington State Cougars. Had a little, almost a decade run there, I think. And um, his first season did not get off to a, a thrilling start. I think they got off to about a two and four start that year. And Coach Leach was not excited about the performance of his players and never won to, um, miss an opportunity to blame somebody, Coach Leach squarely blamed his senior class and their lack of leadership for their failures on the football team, on the football field. And he, he was criticizing them, and it caught the attention of uh, local media, and then eventually ESPN picked it up, and they spread the word about what Coach Leach was saying about his players. And he was saying that they were they were going through the motions, uh, almost uh, had an expectation of this is how it was always going to be, that they had a zombie-like, that was his word, zombie-like quality to them, that they had this empty corpse-like quality to them, that they weren't going to do well that year. Now, if you're a Washington State Cougars fan, that wasn't exciting news. That wasn't the news you were looking for that year, but... If you're a football fan, you do understand that Coach Leach is telling the truth. Uh, football game is a game of intensity, and it has to be played from the heart, right? You can't play football and be a zombie. Now, this morning in our time together, I want to make a little comparison uh, to the character of God's people. And the nature of the worship that we, that we offer. It's just that the stakes are a lot higher when it comes to the worship of our God. Because if there's anything worse than being a zombie on the football field, it's being a zombie in the worship of our God. Amen? God is not aiming for zombies. 
that God is aiming for something far better, something far more significant from our hearts. And that is at the heart of the conversation that Jesus has here with the Samaritan woman at the well. He is not just seeking to inform us about worship, but to transform us into worshipers. God's not looking for zombies. God's looking for worshipers whose lives have been renovated by the Spirit so that we offer up our true selves to the triune God. He wants genuine worshipers. How do we get there? Well, the first step, I would argue, is that we need to gain a true awareness of who we are and our need for the God that we serve. We cannot worship our God until we truly know ourselves and why we need him so much. And that need, that awareness, is at the heart of the conversation that ensues between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Doubtless, you've considered this passage before and realized that something remarkable is happening here. It's remarkable on many levels. First, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. It's not that remarkable that they're traveling through Samaria. That that did happen. But we're not going to get to know the people in this community. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with the woman at the well. And to an observant Jew, that would have been a, um, a taboo. But then he asked for a drink, mingling utensils. That would have been ceremonially certainly unclean. And then that she's a woman. All those things were outside of the box, outside the boundaries of what an observant Jew would have done. And then we also know, verse 7, Jesus um, is there alone at the well. The disciples had gone off to get food for their journey, but the woman also is alone at the midday. Not exactly the typical time for coming to get water at the well, that that she's coming alone may signify that that she herself is something of a social outcast, even among her Samaritan people. There's some social embarrassment that attaches to her her person, because why wouldn't she have come earlier in the morning, during the cool of the day, or later in the afternoon when everyone else came to the well to gather their water? And it's also worth noting that chapter 4 in John's Gospel follows on the heels of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, recorded for us in chapter 3. And there, Jesus is having another solitary conversation, that one with a religious leader. We might say that Paragon, a religious uh, Jewish authority, a a man theologically trained, powerful, um, and learned. By, By contrast here, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, a woman, and a social outcast, and yet there is a strand holding chapters 3 and 4 together. The need of Nicodemus and the need of the Samaritan woman, but, but also, more importantly, the welcome of Jesus. These two chapters picture for us the gracious and amazing welcome that Jesus has towards outsiders. But there's more, isn't there? That There's the well. And there's the actual conversation that Jesus has with the woman here at Jacob's well. And Jesus, using the tools that are at hand, he's about to launch into how this well speaks of himself as the living water given by our God. He says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
again. The water that I give him will, will spring, uh, will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And we understand what Jesus is doing. He's shifting the meaning of water from that which addresses naturally occurring thirst. We understand that. Transforming it into this metaphor of that everlasting, sanctifying, and life-giving presence of our God, that which comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And even that metaphor wouldn't have been entirely strange to a religious person in the ancient Near East, be they Samaritan or Jewish. They would have understood that the springs of water can speak of the blessing and promise and saving grace of our God, and yet she's missing it, isn't she? She's missing, sir, give me this water. Why? So I don't have to come back here and draw water. I want, I want this water so that I don't have to come here and do this well, tiresome burden, this chore. She's missing it, not realizing who is speaking to her and what he is offering. It begs the question, why? Why is she not getting it? Why do we not get it? There's usually something in the way. Something obstructing her view, an obstacle in her path. And so as Jesus continues the conversation, he does something that, that might surprise us, but carries the conversation forward. He wounds her. He faithfully wounds her. As the Proverbs teach us, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband and come here. And she responds, I have no husband, which was technically true, but not the whole story. Jesus knew the whole story, reminding her, you've had five husbands. The one that you're now with is not your husband. And that she had this messy history of relationships with men. Jesus' remark was both stunning. How could he know? That that would have taken her aback. But also painful. Why, why bring all of that up? It's an important question that D.A. Carson suggests. That this isn't just because Jesus was inflicting pain upon the woman. But rather seeking to help her come to terms with the gift that he was offering. I think he's right. Jesus is wanting this woman to come to terms with the kind of gift, the kind of grace that he was offering unto her, and dare I say that he's offering unto us. We too miss Jesus, don't we? He's right in front of us. Because we don't see the obstacles in our path, those things that we've laid hold on, but yet we don't want to address we don't want to deal with our messy histories of relationships with things and people and prizes and prejudices and preferences, agendas, ambition. That those things that we've laid hold on to and yet still stand in the way. But friends, we won't become true worshipers until Jesus puts his finger on such sins, such idols. And we might see how th those things are not only making us thirsty, but we know we're thirsty. 
It's not enough to know that we're thirsty. We have to know that our thirst can only be sated by Him. That only Christ can satisfy our thirst. That like it was true for that woman, the answer is always, the question is always the same thing for us. Who will slake our thirst? And the answer is always Jesus. Which brings us to verse 19, because the story takes, it seems, a hard right turn. Right? The, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, doubtless, because Jesus has just read her mind, knows her story, sight unseen. He has to be a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And some say she's changing the topic of conversation because she wants to avoid that messy conversation about her uh, history with men and that story of sin and doubtless brokenness, too. I think D.A. Carson is right when he says that, no, this is just really an opportunity for her to bring up the long-standing debate or theological question of the day, which would have occupied any observant Samaritan or Jew. Where is the right place for worship? Where is the true place of worship? This is the issue that had divided the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, if you know anything about them, had a complicated history. They weren't exactly the pure remnant of the northern kingdom. We might think of the the Israelites. That's not who they were because the Assyrians had taken them over. That that region exiled them. And there was now a mixture of peoples that were in that part of the, the, uh, the region of Judea. And not only that, they had rejected the writings of the prophets and and uh, the wisdom literature that they had only held on to the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and for that reason they rejected the whole explanation as inspired by God that worship was to be in Jerusalem, in the temple. That entire story was rejected. They had their own explanation why worship needed to happen on Mount Gerizim, on this particular mountain, and this is the long-standing debate that the woman is raising with Jesus, and, and in response, Jesus is not deterred um, by, by her questioning, and his response is utterly fascinating. He, he takes a side in the debate. He answers her question. Look what he says in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He literally is saying to the woman that that you worship what you do not know. That she and the Samaritans do not have a living and faithful relationship with the true God, no matter how sincere their worship may have been, no matter how devoted their worship may have been. It, It was not in accord with God's revealed will, and so in a decisive way, Jesus is declaring there is a right way and a wrong way to worship the true God, and they weren't doing it. Salvation is from the Jews. Now, I know your eyes might be glazing over the obvious point that I'm making. But, but we really can do the wrong things with good things. We can worship the wrong way. Funny story that, that it may make you wish you had a different president at Covenant Seminary, but when I was a young boy, a teenager, 13 or 14, a good friend of mine had invited me to go water skiing. It was the first time that I was going to water ski. We went to a, 
um, a, a beautiful lake in the panhandle of Florida. That's where I grew up, Lake Mystic. And uh, he, he, the first thing we were going to do when we got onto the lake was wakeboard. That was how he was going to introduce the sport to me. And he got behind the boat and wakeboarded, and he was quite skillful in his um, wakeboarding, and I was impressed with all the things that he could do. And then it came my turn, and, uh, and so I had my opportunity, got myself up uh, behind the boat, and began to get more and more comfortable behind the boat and began to cross the wake and, and those types of things. And then I began to think, you know, what, what other things might I do while I'm behind the boat? And as one without a fully developed prefrontal cortex is wont to do, um, I, I thought, well, you know, there's this space here created by the rope and the handle. I know what I will do. I'm going to put this around my neck behind the boat. Thankfully, my friend's mother was driving the boat. And she saw me do that and immediately stopped not only reminding me how crazy and dangerous that was, but also to never do that again. Um, but, but it's a powerful reminder, isn't it? That, that, that even when we're having fun, even when we're enjoying water skiing, right, there are some things that you just don't do with the rope. Right, There are just some things that the rope is not for. And when you're behind a boat, it's not for putting it around your neck. On the same way, friends, there are the right ways to worship. And there are the wrong ways to worship. And it's a matter of life and death. Right? The salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. But even that's not the whole story. Even that's not the whole story. It's not just about where we worship. It's not just about what we do. It's about who we are. And that's at the heart of the conversation that Jesus wants to have with the woman. I skipped over verse 21. Jesus says things are changing. The time is changing. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. With the advent of Jesus, Jesus is explaining the geography of worship, the priority of the Jewish people will no longer have the prominence that they did formally, that Jesus is, as it were, widening the net, expanding the possibilities of what's allowable in the worship of the triune God, and we see that verse 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 24 really is the crux phrase. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. That that phrase has occupied... um, quite a bit of attention over the history of the church. There are really two issues. What does Jesus mean by saying God is spirit? Some have said that he's simply referring to the immateriality, the, the, the incorporeality of, of the Lord our God. God is spirit, as we say in the children's catechism, and has no body like we do. And as his creation, we, we have spirits, souls. And 
Jesus is just simply speaking of a correspondence between that immateriality. We have to worship him as he is spirit, so we have to worship him in our spirits. And yet, as I think about the broader context from chapter 3 and the conversation of Nicodemus and really the whole trajectory of the conversation with the Samaritan woman, we recognize that more is going on here. This is a declaration of God's divine agency. As God is light, as God is love, so God is spirit. And so must we have a profound engagement with that spirit if our worship is to be genuine. But we have to have had that agency somehow operate upon our lives and in our hearts. Our worship must correspond to that divine agency and grace. God is the life-giving spirit, and those who worship him must have a profound experience of that spirit. But, but notice, it's not just God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. It's in spirit and truth. That single preposition reminds us that those two words are to be connected, explaining one idea, not two. And so truth is explaining, explicating what's meant by the nature of the Spirit. And I think Dr. Jack Collins at Covenant Seminary is right when he explains that this word truth can also be translated in reality or genuinely. And when we bring those two ideas together, we can see that with the advent of Jesus, worship is no longer geographically determined, but it is most definitely spiritually informed and requires that real life change have occurred. That we've got to offer up our true selves to the triune God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship from the heart as those who've been genuinely changed by God. You can't be a zombie. We can't be zombies and truly worship. We have to be those who've been made alive and have a deep encounter of the life and grace that comes in the Father. A funny story. Uh, we served for 19 years in San Antonio, Texas. It's our home. All of our children claim that as their home. We love to go back and visit there. Our friends are there. It's, it's, it's where we're from. So a few weeks ago, my wife was coming back from San Antonio to St. Louis, and she was uh, checking her bags at the uh, airport, and the attendant flagged the bag that she was checking because it was overweight. And if, you've, if that's ever happened to you, you know what the attendant's going to tell you to do. And he said, unzip your bag so we can in investigate. So she unzipped her bag, and inside, she knew what was inside the bag, were hundreds of tortillas that she had stuffed in her suitcase. <laughs> and the reason why is because you can't get good tortillas in St. Louis. I mean, you, we just can't find them. We don't know why, but you can't find them. And, and so we now bring tortillas and a few other items from San Antonio back to St. Louis. But the big one is uh, the tortillas. And, and, of course, it was comical. My wife was a little embarrassed uh, by it. Uh, but then the attendant, laughing at the spectacle, he just says, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. And he was right. 
That day, another friend who had moved to South Florida was traveling back to South Florida, and she had stuffed her suitcase with tortillas too. So this does happen, and it is true. And it reminded me that, that this is how you tell if you're a genuine San Antonian. That this is how you tell if you're really a, a true believer in the city of San Antonio is you become a tortilla smuggler. <laughs> this is what you do. Because you can't get them anywhere else. You carry it with you. In the same way, in an even deeper, more significant and transformative way, Jesus is saying that if we want to be a true worshiper of our God, we have to be spirit smugglers. We have to be genuine carriers of the God we worship because we have been changed. And we can carry him everywhere. We can worship everywhere but because we have been changed. That there is that genuine experience of the presence of our God. We are different now. Which then begs the question, how can this happen? How can I go from being a zombie to a true worshiper? And the Samaritan woman seems to be putting the pieces together, right? Maybe even obliquely wondering, is this the Savior? She doesn't say that, but she does comment. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Don't you wonder if she's saying, are you the Christ? And Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. He's calling her, right, to true worship. He's calling her to genuine worship. Why has worship in Jerusalem been transcended? Because someone greater than the temple is now here. And that someone, friends, is Jesus. Who's aiming to make us genuine worshipers. What is he aiming for? What is he up to? What is he wanting to do in our lives? He's wanting to take our zombie-like hands and hearts and transform them. But in transforming them, he's not just doing it so that we have some sense of personal release unto our autonomous freedom. No, he's aiming to turn us from ourselves unto him in life-giving worship that we might truly, genuinely, authentically worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder that you are indeed seeking worshipers And we pray that your spirit would so move upon us and among us that we might be changed and that we might joyfully offer up our true selves to you. That we would, as it were, be carriers of the triune God in our worship, but also our lives and community and the mission that we offer. That God, you would so make us and continue to renew and remake us that the world would ask, what is going on there? What's happening there? 
and that we might be your light bearers in this world. Do this, we pray, in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen. Let me invite you to stand with me as